Hello, and welcome to The Box. I'm your host, Addison Gilmore. A while back, I found a creepy box full of creepy journals containing even creepier stories. And life hasn't been the same since. If this is your first time listening to the show, stop what you're doing and start at the beginning. Otherwise, none of this will make sense. If you've been listening from the get-go, hang on to your butts. Things are about to get even weirder. I don't know who you are or what you're up to, but let me suggest that you leave this alone. Are you still having dreams? Seriously, what the fuck is happening here? Regnant is not the big bad in this season. I won't become a weapon. You got this. Guard up, head down, keep moving forward. I almost gave up on the journals. Did you know that? I almost shoved that damn box back where I found it, figured I'd ask Madeline about it when she got back. I sometimes wonder how things would have played out if I'd gone that route. Would Madeline have told me the truth? How long would it have taken for things to kick into high gear if she hadn't? That wasn't the last time I thought about calling it quits, either. I remember Josh eyeing me warily as I explained that We'd assign letters to each volume, then indicate page numbers within the journal associated with a specific entry, then the date, if indicated, the language, then try to assign it to a category. We'd consolidate into categories and subcategories at the end, enter the data into a spreadsheet, and try to identify patterns in the content. A few times he opened his mouth as if to protest, but Josh knew me better than anyone. There was a fire in my belly and a flash in my eyes, and there was nothing he could do or say to cool the seething embers at that point. We were off to the races. Like I said way back when I first started, the journals were incongruous. Handwriting, date, subject matter, it was scattered among what appeared to be hand-stitched volumes. Someone had seemingly gone to a lot of trouble to ensure very specific pieces of content were in very specific locations in very specific journals. But for the life of me, I couldn't figure out the connection. Starting data analysis seemed a fool's errand since we were less than halfway through our reading. The topics were all over the place, the handwriting nearly indecipherable when it was in English in the first place. One night, a good ways into the research, as I sat staring at the board, oblivious to the fact that Josh had called out my name several times, he slammed one of the journals hard, snapping me to attention. I know who I must have looked. Eyes glazed over, hair a mess... Wearing the same clothes from two days prior, fingertips stained with dry erase markers and smudged ink. Josh? He just looked genuinely worried. He only had to say one word. Once again, twisting the knife. Clearview. Back then, the assumption was that the Clearview attack was a result of my overzealous journalistic instincts getting me into trouble. I now know that it was something far more nefarious, but at that point... All Josh could see was me going down an investigative rabbit hole once again. He meant well, but fuck. (laughs) You ever go through the five stages of grief so fast it gives you whiplash? 
self-denial. This was nothing like what happened at Clearview. Anger. How dare he, of all people, bring that up again. Bargaining. Just give me a few more days. I know we're going to find the missing piece here. Depression. I just can't accept that we've wasted all this time on nothing. Except... Acceptance. Maybe it was time to call it quits. He helped me pack everything up, and I shoved it under my desk. Finally, if fitfully, sleeping. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of how this podcast almost never was. I've had a lot of almosts in my life, when I think about it. I almost got killed by Crazy Chucky. Remember that one? I almost got blown up. I almost set Rosemary's house on fire. I almost got set on fire myself at Joe's. I almost fell for Cameron. I almost got surfed up on a silver platter to Central by Mariah. Almost, almost, almost. And I almost didn't get back out of bed after the close call at the orphanage. The whole thing had been draining. It really had taken all of my energy to get the job done, and it took a physical toll too. But it wasn't just that. It was realizing how callous Regnant could be, that even in death, those children had been the enemy. It was thinking about Clearview again when I'd worked so hard to keep those memories at bay. It was the revelation that not only had Regnan orchestrated the whole thing, but that it had all been an effort to get me to manifest sensitivities. It was all too much. Everyone tried to get me up. Rashida would bring in trays of food I refused to touch. Graham came in, ostensibly to check on me, but he was really there for mind manipulation, however ineffective it was. Erica tried to tempt me by offering up a game of fireball dodgeball. Even Terry tried to rouse me with a stiff, if adorable, attempt at a pep talk. It was Frank, though, who got through. Rise and shine. Frank, no offense, leave me alone. No can do. No one gets to wallow without me around these parts. Especially not without a strong drink on hand. Come on now, drink up. What is this? Just drink. May the bottle always keep us warm. (coughs) (coughs) No, seriously, Frank, what the fuck is this? You once asked me what my favorite poison was. This is it. Go on now, it gets easier. There you go. That a girl. How did you know I needed a drink? No one goes through what you did then stays in bed for days without needing a drink. But at some point here, you're going to need to stop needing a drink and start working again. What if I don't want to? Hey, it's your funeral. I'll be sure to pour one out for you. No, on second thought, I'll just drink in your honor. No need to waste good booze. Ha ha, very funny. You think I'm kidding? Nope. Actually, I fully believe you. Seriously, though, dude, you gotta get up. D-Day's coming up quick. I'm stalling as much as I can, but top brass is getting antsy. Whatever. I don't want anything to do with this. Bit late for that, my friend. Here's what I don't understand. Knowing who Regnant was, why did Jay stay? It was a bit late for him, too. But he was always an optimist. He was sure he could turn things around. Was he a good man? I think he tried to be. Wasn't always. Road to hell and all that. 
Why did you stay with Regnant? I didn't. I stayed with Jay. Especially after I found out about the files he was collecting. That's when I knew I could trust him. Well, he's gone now. Why stay? You, dummy. What? You know, your dad might have been a jackass, but he always said you were the best part of him. I've seen that. Whether it was your podcast or watching you here or hearing about the orphanage, you got heart, kid. One way or another, you're going to end up on top. Mark my words. And I'll have your back all the way there. I need another drink. <laughs> but the only way you end up on top is if you get off your ass and get back to work. Because Ariana ain't no joke. So I've heard. You don't know the half of it. Look, I'll get you started. There. You want to know what you're up against? Why you need to get back to fucking work? This is the file you need. I don't know what kind of booze this is, but I know I've had enough that I'm not going to be able to stare at a computer screen. Well, it's your lucky day then, because this isn't a text file. It's a collection of audio files. Huh? About what? Just listen. And maybe go take a shower or something. You smell. Get out of here, jackass. All right, all right. Nope. Leave the bottle. That a girl. I did as I was told. I showered, albeit substituting a shower beer for some shower booze. I wasn't feeling the idea of getting dressed, so I slipped into some of the more comfy PJs Nadia had finally procured before she left. Then I sat down, put in my headphones, and started to listen. It was painful. Somewhere along the way, those audio files got corrupted, and since you guys tend to bitch whenever my audio is off, there was no way I was including them here. Instead, I transcribed them. It was a pain in the ass, and you're welcome. But this is what those entries contained. This is Dr. Maria Rodriguez, entry number one for case number 682. Approximately four days ago, headquarters received reports through our law enforcement channels that a strange man had been found stumbling out of the woods near the Appalachian Mountains. Dirty, unkempt, and malnourished, he appeared confused, unaware of the date or his location, and was therefore transferred to a local hospital for observation. During this period, it was determined that he was one Clayton Greenfeld, a hiker who had gone missing in the mountains nearly four months prior. The reasons for him being brought to our attention were twofold. The first was that the area in which he had become lost was what we refer to as the Devil's Fold, containing dozens of leyline vortices. The second was that when he became agitated, the machines in the immediate area began to malfunction. As such, he appeared a perfect candidate for what we've called the Lazarus Project. He was transferred to our care approximately 48 hours ago. He has since been kept heavily sedated as some of his wounds were addressed by Ms. Mayweather, whose healing sensitivity continues to strengthen. We are hopeful that we'll be able to initiate phase one of testing in a few days. This is Dr. Maria Rodriguez reporting on week one progress for case number 682. The subject's physical health has improved substantially. All bones have been properly reset with fracture points having grown stronger. 
all lacerations have been healed, and the damage done to his internal organs by both malnourishment and prior lifestyle choices have all but been reversed. Full sedation, however, is in effect. Initial attempts to titrate to lower levels resulted in malfunctioning of surrounding medical equipment, much like what was observed in the hospital. Readings of latent energy concentrations revealed levels rarely seen in functional human beings. But given that ongoing sedation risks additional liver damage, it was imperative that we develop a plan for safe titration anyway. The selected solution is to have an active empath in his presence at all times as he's weaned off the sedatives, along with a healer who can help ease any symptoms of withdrawal. We will continue to monitor his energy levels during the titration process and report back. Director Kelly has taken a personal interest in this case and has requested to be notified of all progress, especially once he regains consciousness. As such, case number 682 has been made top priority for Project Lazarus. Dr. Maria Rodriguez reporting on week two progress for case number 682. The subject has been fully weaned off of sedatives and has regained consciousness. He remains confused as to his whereabouts or how he got here. His speech is stilted, most likely a result of his isolation during his months in the mountains, but exposure to the vortices likely did not help. Beyond the obvious symptoms, however, comes the heightened energy registering on every level, from radiant to concentrated during emotional periods. In order to contain such outbursts, it has become necessary to maintain the presence of no fewer than two empaths at every moment. It takes the combined efforts of the empaths to control the surges, which, quite frankly, makes me apprehensive about the proposed path forward. Director Kelly remains exceptionally interested in this case, and has begun to bring members of the military wing with her to observe her interactions with the subject. The subject responds well to her, though, as a precaution, we mandate the presence of two additional empaths during said visits. Given the current mental state of the subject, there is a hope that he may be uniquely susceptible to suggestion, making him well-suited for behavioral conditioning. This, paired with uniquely high registers of energy, has prompted a new plan. The subject, with the presence of now three empaths, will be exposed to artificially derived flows of additional energy in order to determine whether he might be strengthened. My concerns with such a proposal are twofold. First, while the subject has certainly demonstrated high levels of energy retention and projection, the primary manifestation has been significant strength. Without the presence of empaths, he'd be breaking through his restraints regularly, with little we could do to control him. But beyond that, and occasional technology malfunctions, he has yet to demonstrate any defined or significant sensitivity. As such, additional exposure to energy flows seems a waste of our time at best and potentially dangerous at its worst. Second, it's important to note the difference between natural and artificial exposure to energy flows. Natural energy exposure often comes in waves and is diluted by the absorption of said energy by surroundings both organic and otherwise. As a result, the effect of exposure is cumulative. Artificial exposure is far more concentrated, and prior experiments have shown that exposure to create volatile, unpredictable consequences. Given the subject's existing strength, this could be a recipe for disaster. Dr. Rodriguez reporting on week three progress in case number 682. Exposure to additional energy, as predicted, has increased the subject's strength substantially. It also seems to have deteriorated his sense of cognition, reducing his speech capabilities to a series of grunts. He also seems to have difficulty making and maintaining eye contact, and experiences what appears to be involuntary body spasms that fall just short of a seizure. I remain concerned about the long-term physiological implications of this course of action. 
Director Kelly and the military personnel involved in the case, however, seem to believe that these conditions signal an appropriate starting point to introduce the McKenna Protocol, whereby energy exposure will continue to be titrated up with the introduction of Pavlovian conditioning tactics. The idea is that, despite diminished cognitive functioning, existing cognition may be molded to respond to specific triggers. Much as was the case with Pavlov's dogs, specific behavior will be rewarded with incentives, starting with rudimentary commands and escalating from there. These rewards will be pieces of food and eventually reduced to meal supplements. I worry about this approach. The subject's restraints to date have restricted him to a chair, while the proposed approach would put the subject in chains so as to allow a wider range of motion. I am not at all certain these chains could hold. Moreover, the push to move him to meal supplements could further compromise a body that is still relatively malnourished. The plan is moving forward regardless. I'll report further on progress next week. Case number 682, Progress Report, week four from Dr. Rodriguez. The subject has responded very well in a short period of time to the McKenna Protocol. What started as a series of simple commands, sit, stand, place your hands on your head, close your eyes, have been mastered with the incentive of small amounts of food, apples, a piece of bread, a carrot, and so forth. Physically, the extended range of movement seems to be benefiting muscle development and overall coordination, though speech and critical thought seem to be suffering as the subject is exposed to more and more energy. Overall strength has certainly increased, as has radiant energy emissions. I have begun to wonder if the emissions might compromise the efficacy of military efforts, though. Should the radiant energy reach a critical mass, the impacts of current concentrated energy exposure on the subject might extend to surrounding compatriots. Director Kelly and the military personnel, however, believe that it's time to move the experiment to the next phase. This would involve multiple steps, including complete removal of restraints, the inclusion of a full team of empaths and a handful of telepaths, more complex commands, additional training of the subject, and the introduction of electrical stimulation as a form of aversion therapy in conjunction with continued Pavlovian tactics. I'm not sure the subject is quite ready for such a significant change in routine, but there appears to be a sense of urgency to the pace at hand. As Director Kelly put it, I don't care who has to die. Come hell or high water, we're going to make this work. Week 5 status update on case number 682 from Dr. Rodriguez. As I feared, the change in regimen has had consequences. Physically, the subject is stronger than ever, and the continued Pavlovian tactics, even with meal supplements, appears to be providing adequate nutrition. Mentally, however, the man has become essentially feral. It's not dissimilar to the way some train dogs. When he's good, he gets a treat. When he's not, he experiences pain. He is increasingly responsive to more complex commands, and combined with the increase in overall strength, the results have been extraordinary. He can bend and twist a steel chair into a compact box with his bare hands. He can essentially scale walls to the rafters above. His physical training demonstrates a stamina I've never seen before. There have been a couple issues, though. Even with the success of the conditioning technique, some objectives, like training the subject for physical combat, have proven untenable. A number of sparring partners have tried and wound up in the medical wing. The subject is simply too strong. Fearful of someone ending up dead, they've abandoned that effort in favor of increasing mental strength. The question at hand? Can the subject resist the efforts of other sensitives in the field? It appears he can. He has exhausted the team of empaths tasked with keeping the subject's rage in check. Our telepaths report that they can no longer break through the subject's natural defenses. I understand the need for such training if they want him to be able to perform as a weapon against powerful sensitives, 
but such capabilities could easily be turned on our own. This seems unlikely at the moment. The man can barely function without the conditioning tactics we've implemented. And in fairness, I cannot imagine a world where he would be able to make any sort of decision for himself at this point. But still. I will admit, despite my initial reservations, I do take some pride in the progress to date. I might not have agreed with the pacing of the experiment or every decision made, but if I may eschew humility for a moment, this initiative could not have succeeded at this level without my guidance and management. Case number 682 may be my greatest accomplishment yet. Dr. Rodriguez with the week six status update on case number 682. If you'll forgive the language, it's the damnedest thing. A week ago, the subject was essentially a wild animal. Though there was certainly potential for him to be a useful tool, his temperament and lack of social awareness also made him a liability. Then came the breakthrough. I wish I could pinpoint what caused it, but it was as though someone had flipped a switch. Overnight, he went from being incapable of staying still to a near zombie. The subject would stare straight ahead, unmoving until issued a command. At that point, without defined incentive even, the task would be completed with total efficiency, at which point the subject would return to the starting point, once more immobile. Pavlovian rewards have been accepted on a sporadic basis without deviation from this behavior, but have proven unnecessary. Arbitrary application of aversion therapy has been met with near-surgical behavioral modification without any sort of emotional or physical reaction. There is no longer a need for empaths or telepaths to intervene to keep the calm. The subject regulates himself. Quite frankly, it's a bit unnerving. There have been no physical or psychological changes, though all verbalization has ceased. Not only is there no speech, but grunting of any sort has stopped. The subject has essentially become mute. On the one hand, this should be heralded as an unmitigated success. What has been created here is basically the penultimate super soldier. Silent, compliant, and quite likely deadly. On the other hand, I'm not confident we are fully aware of the extent of his capabilities, and the rapid change in personality does make me anxious. Regardless, the military personnel would like to test him in the field, and Director Kelly agrees. I will update on progress following the trial. Dr. Rodriguez here. Case number 682 has ended in what can only be described as disaster. We were completely, utterly wrong on every front. It took a while for the military personnel to find an appropriate test run. They wanted it to be relatively straightforward, but they also wanted it to be on familiar turf, Appalachia. The thinking was that the combination of these factors would set the subject up for success. Privately, one of the men suggested that proof of concept could funnel more resources into Project Lazarus, allowing them to generate even more actors like the subject. They found a case eventually. Deep in the mountains, a family of what essentially amounted to supernatural cannibals had been detected. They served as a type of siren, luring individuals from surrounding areas to their home, where they would then be killed and consumed. It was believed that their siren call strengthened with each kill as the energy absorbed from the human flesh bolstered their abilities. Paired with their proximity to the Devil's Fold, that kind of strength was dangerous. At least, that's what I was told. I cannot be certain that this was the case. Signs that the mission was ill-fated started early. 
Gundry, one of the strongest teleporters in the force, was tasked with transporting the team to the nearby coordinates at the start. Instead of sticking the landing, the team wound up in a remote part of Idaho. The second attempt landed them in a wooded area of Mississippi. The third transported them to Minnesota. Chastised for such failures, Gundry complained of a severe headache as his nose began to bleed. The team managed to get back to HQ, where Gundry required hospitalization. On the second try, multiple teleporters were included, successfully getting the team to the requisite coordinates. There was still a three-mile hike to be had to the edge of the woods preceding the clearing surrounding the targeted home. But once more, team members began to feel ill. Several others developed headaches and subsequent nosebleeds. About a mile and a half in, the team escorting the subject had been reduced to five operatives. During that final mile and a half, the operatives had become irritable, sniping at each other over missteps as trivial as stepping on a twig too loudly or following each other too closely. The tension actually escalated to the point where Commander Broderick had to use his firearm on an increasingly volatile operative who had, ironically, begun to demonstrate behavior as feral as that seen in the subject just weeks prior. The subject remained quiet and compliant throughout. Reduced to a team of four shepherding the subject, the team approached the clearing. The subject was instructed to enter the home, eliminate the targets, and return with the brain of one of the subjects for further testing at HQ. The order was complex, but Commander Broderick felt confident the subject would be able to comply, having exhibited a clear ability to follow orders even more complex within the confines of an in-house test. Per usual, the subject complied, walking calmly towards the residence. The door was unlocked, and the subject entered the home. Moments later, the screams began. These were not the screams of individuals being neatly executed. They were the screams of excruciating pain. Now nervous, the team began to approach the home. Within about 10 yards, the screaming ceased, though the subject did not reappear. Upon entering the residence, Commander Broderick recalled a scene the likes of which he had never seen before. Both parents and their three children were most certainly deceased, but it wasn't, as had been requested, a series of clean kills. Their limbs had been torn from their bodies. The father's intestines had been ripped from his abdomen and laced around his neck. The mother's eyes had been gouged out entirely, her jaw hanging at an awkward angle. The children lay lifeless, their tongues resting beside their heads. And the room itself was entirely, and I do mean entirely, coated with blood. As Commander Broderick would later say, it was as though the subject had actively sought to coat the walls. The subject stood behind the victims, holding a brain in each hand. Then the unthinkable happened. He spoke. These are what you were looking for, right? He asked. The team stood slack-jawed, unable to process what they were seeing. Commander Broderick slowly asked the subject to place the brains down and return to the clearing. The subject did not comply. The commander asked again, more urgently, and once more, the subject did not comply. The commander triggered the chip used for aversion therapy and... While the subject put down the brains, he did not move from his position. It was at this point that one of the team members raised his firearm 
and slowly turned towards one of the other team members, who followed suit. Despite orders from the commander for them to lower their weapons, they did not. One of them, Sergeant Bordeaux, cried out that he couldn't. They exchanged fire, each wounding the other. The subject snapped his fingers, and the necks of both men snapped in tandem. One other teammate remained. As the subject fixed his gaze on Lieutenant Vazio, the man slowly reached down and, with rapid precision, pulled the femur cleanly out of one of the victim's limbs, cracking it in half. Commander Broderick called out to him, but found his own self unable to move. Vazio, lifting the femur high in the air, proceeded to stab himself repeatedly. First in the legs, then in the abdomen, then in his eyes, and finally into his neck, issuing the fatal wound. At this point, the subject, covered in blood himself, reached down into a freshly forming pool of blood and turned to the commander, smearing the hot liquid across his face. As he stepped back, the commander's legs broke backwards at the knee, sending him tumbling to the ground. The subject hunched down and whispered in his ear, It is done. He then walked out the door, leaving nothing but carnage in his wake. After hearing nothing in 48 hours, a recon team was sent into the field. Each of the team members left behind along the hike was deceased. Upon reaching the residence, they found the commander barely alive. It would be a week before the man was able to communicate what had happened. We remain unsure of how or why the subject was able to develop such controls so rapidly, how he was able to conceal it from the team, or really the true extent of his abilities. We have, unfortunately, yet to locate him. Still, despite the admittedly tragic outcome of case number 682, I remain hopeful. We were, after all, able to develop the perfect soldier. Our only failing was adequate conditioning to ensure compliance. Further experiments should provide greater insight as to how best to monitor development and perfect the timeline. We're so close. What the fuck, right? It's like the goriest supernatural version of the Manchurian Candidate ever. No, that doesn't really cover it, does it? I mean, it's terrifying, primarily because it shows such a gross disregard for human life and autonomy. Was this what Jay wanted me to see? The lengths to which Regnant was willing to go to achieve their ends? I knew from personal experience that they had few qualms about taking a malicious road less traveled. I wasn't sure why this one was necessary. Maybe, I thought, it was that he wanted me to understand how easy it was for Regnant to do just that. Maybe it was that he wanted to understand how quickly one would be manipulated into something unrecognizable. Maybe it was a warning. I'll be honest. I didn't know much about psychological conditioning, much less the use of energy to condition the sensitivities of a subject, as the doctor in the files liked to say. I knew it was going to be harder to find answers on the latter subject, so I decided to start with the former, reaching out to Dr. Eleanor Signa, 
a respected expert on psychological manipulation. Hi, is is this Dr. Uh, Cigna? Uh, speaking. Awesome. I'm really glad I caught you. My name is Addison Gilmore. I'm uh, a, a filmmaker. Well, at least I, I hope to be. And I'm working with a few other people on this screenplay, um, a psychological thriller. We want to make sure we're getting our facts straight. And I was kind of hoping you might be willing to talk to me for a few minutes. Um, okay. Perfect. So... The story revolves around a character that's psychologically manipulated. We're interested in better understanding how people might be, well, conditioned, I guess, to behave in certain ways. Well, there are different ways that that can happen. I guess you really need to be more specific. Like, say stuff like Pavlov. Sure. Reward as a form of motivation is a form of psychological manipulation, though often benign. Okay, what about, like... Aversion therapy. That's another method. Think about it like a carrot and a stick. Pavlov's approach to conditioning is the carrot. Tactics like those used in aversion therapy, just similar approaches to human interaction, would be like the stick. So how common is the carrot relative to the stick? Totally depends on the situation. For instance, if we're talking about therapeutic application, the carrot might be affirmation and encouragement. Aversion therapy refers to a broad array of tactics and has been applied in some pretty nasty ways over the years, particularly in pseudoscientific practices like conversion therapy. Now, if we're talking about social contexts, like parenting, for instance, you often see both the carrot and the stick used. Sometimes that's healthy. Oh, for good grades, for example, or getting grounded for breaking a rule. Sometimes it's not healthy. Food is motivation or physical violence as a deterrent. Then there are suddenly abusive situations where these tactics are used. Take, for example, victims of domestic abuse. The carrot might be lavish gifts or high praise for adhering to impossible standards, but the stick is often verbal shaming and assault. People ask why victims don't leave their abusers. They fear the stick and justify its use by the carrot. I guess I never thought about it that way. But... What about conditioning based on circumstance? Like, you hear stories about feral children found in the wild or whatever. Could that happen to adults? Feral behavior, as you put it, is pretty rare. The cases you're talking about, they are one in a million, and they often require serious isolation from society. In adults, it's even more rare. That said, there are certainly less extreme examples. Though I hesitate to frame it that way, where behavior modification efforts, even in adults, can result in serious social impairment that years of therapeutic intervention cannot rectify. Well, what do you mean? It's most commonly seen in survivors of trauma, especially violent trauma. But trauma can take many different forms, and measuring one form against the other is a futile and potentially damaging exercise. The impact of war on a soldier, for instance, can cause PTSD but so can years of emotional abuse at the hands of a parent on a still-developing young mind. Trauma can rewire the brain. Okay. You talk about isolation being the key. Can you expand on that? A concrete example might be the isolation of inmates in prison. Think the SHU, or segregated holding units, in Orange is the New Black. The psychological impact of completely cutting off contacts with the outside world cannot be understated. Humans, by their very nature, are social animals. 
restricting human interaction is enough to even drive the most sane person crazy, even if I hate that word. No one will ever convince me such policies amount to anything less than cruel and unusual punishment, but that's a concrete example. An abuser cutting their partner off from the outside world is isolation. A parent cutting off their child from all social activity is, to slightly lesser extent, isolation. It is an isolation that your mind can become your worst enemy, and if it doesn't, it at least becomes more vulnerable to that stick we were talking about. I see. If I may, these are pretty specific questions. What exactly is the story about? Oh, it's a... Oh, wait, sorry, Dr. Signet, that's actually someone beeping in on the other line, but hey, thank you for your help. Okay, so some of the tactics used by Dr. Rodriguez were rooted in basic psychology. Great. I still didn't answer my questions about the energy, but certainly shored up my theory that Jay was trying to demonstrate just how ruthless, no, soulless, Regnant could be. I started to wonder, though. Maybe Jay was trying to tell me something else. This series of audio files actually named names. In my experience, that was pretty rare. Though I highly doubted I'd find much on any of them, I figured it couldn't hurt to check out good old Google. Unsurprisingly, there was nothing on Broderick or Gundry or Vasio or the like. Of course, Regnant wouldn't advertise some kind of covert military force. I thought I might have a chance with Dr. Rodriguez, but still no dice. I figured she was underground, too. But one search for Kelly and Regnant? Paydirt, a public-facing member of Regnant. And fuck me running with a chainsaw, Kelly referred to none other than the VP of Operations, one Ariana Kelly. Fuck, 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 fuck. Jay had warned me that she couldn't be trusted. He'd warned me she was dangerous. And this, this was him warning me that she was pure fucking evil. I don't know how else to describe someone who doesn't care who dies as long as she gets away. Panic started to rise in my throat. Frank had been stalling for me, but I knew it wasn't long before I was going to have to come face to face with this woman. I wasn't ready. I needed more answers. Because if this man could be turned into a monster, I mean... Who's to say I couldn't be? So I turned to the one man I knew would probably have answers. I pinged Frank and asked him to send up Terry. Come in. You wanted to see me? Yes, take a seat. Okay. You worked military for Regnant before this. I... Don't bother arguing. I don't have time for it, literally. Why does Regnant have a military force? Most of our field operations are run by those personnel. There are operatives and... try again. I've seen organizations with operatives and agents. This is different. This is military. Why? It's a precaution. Against what? You know what Regnant's angle is, right? Yes. Integration of sensitives in broader society. Letting them live openly. That might have been how it started. But there was a faction. Now, a quite powerful faction that believed that was impossible, that there would be a backlash against a sensitive community. It spawned a number of covert initiatives to protect sensitives should that come to pass, one of which was the creation of a pseudo-military force. War preparations. I don't know if I would phrase it that way. Was it for war against non-sensitives or part of this godforsaken prophecy? Honestly, I don't know. Okay. Okay. 
So Regnet has this pseudo-military force, as you put it. What does it look like? Well, they're trained like any other military force. I was a Marine before my sensitivities manifested. That's when Regnet recruited me. It was like going through boot camp all over again. But they also train you on how to strengthen and control your sensitivities. In addition to experiments. How did you know about... Oh, Jay. Bingo. What do you know about Project Lazarus? Not much. I was never associated with it. But people talk. Supposedly, they were trying to create the perfect soldier. I'm not sure how it turned out. Did people talk about case number 682? Not that I can remember. It was all just the rumor mill. Did they talk about what the Project Lazarus experiments looked like? Addison. Where is this coming from? Answer the question. (sighs) People had their theories. A lot of it had to do with energy exposure, is my understanding. It was a lot more than that. Then you know more than I do. (sighs) Case number 682 included not only energy exposure, but a great deal of psychological conditioning. Sure, that's part of any military training. Strengthening the mind so it can endure that much more. No, this was conditioning for compliance. Right. Like I said. No. You don't get it. They were trying to weaken his mind. All he was supposed to be able to do was follow orders. Supposed? It didn't turn out well. They created a monster. Ah. Terry, do you think Regnant would try to weaponize me? I don't think so. I mean, maybe. But I get the sense you're bigger than that to them. Well, that's my fear. The guy in case number 682 had barely developed any sensitivities, and he... Like I said, it didn't turn out well. If they were to weaponize me... I see. What are you asking? Gather the others. I'll meet you in the living room. I didn't know what I was going to ask for, even after I asked everyone to meet. All I knew was that sitting in front of a computer screen wasn't going to prepare me to meet Ariana, and it certainly wouldn't prevent Regnant from turning me into something I didn't want to think about. As I approached the team, they stood, and I waved them down. Alright, thank you for meeting with me. I think I need your help. Okay. Frank, how long do I have before the legal team descends? Uh, I'm not sure. I did my best, promise. But probably 48 hours at best. Okay. Then we have no time to waste, which means, Frank, off the sauce until we get through this. But- No buts. Listen, guys, Jay might have been an asshole of epic proportions, but he left me a bit of a trail to follow, and it spells out in no uncertain terms that the stakes are about to get impossibly high, and I can't do this alone. What are you getting at? These people- They're ruthless. Excuse me. I'll do respect, but we are part of these people. Nope, you're not. 
If you were, Frank wouldn't have stalled for me. We would never have gone to the orphanage. Graham, you wouldn't have tried to call me in distress. Erica, you wouldn't push me the way you do. Terry, you wouldn't tolerate my nonsense. Each and every one of you has shown me that you are certainly not part of these people, which is why I'm turning to you now. Why the urgency? Why the urgency? I don't get it. It's just going to be a bunch of suits. I wish it were that simple. I need to be stronger. I'm, I'm not ready. Addison, you've already demonstrated your strength to us. And what if they decide to push that? They've already crossed lines trying to get me to manifest. They've already used energy exposure to try to strengthen others' sensitivities. They've already shown they'll kill anyone who gets in their way. They've already prepared to take things as far as it takes. They've already prepared to take things as far as it's going to take to get what they want. I won't become a weapon. No. You won't. What do you need? I need a boot camp of my own. I need to be a fortress. They can't get to me. They can't know just what I can do. And I need to be able to do what it takes on my own terms if I run out of options. And you guys, you're going to teach me. You heard Frank. We have 48 hours. Let's get to work. I almost gave up on the journals, but as they say, almost only counts in horseshoes. There could be no almost here. It was do or die. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Box. A new episode will be coming out soon, but until then, be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. It'll help others find the show, and the more listeners, the more potential answers to some of our bigger questions. You can also access the full catalog of episodes at theboxpodcast.home.blog, along with bonus content and additional information on the show. If you haven't already, like us on Facebook as The Box Podcast, and follow us on Twitter as The Box Stories to keep updated. You can always reach out directly, too, at OpenTheBoxPodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can make a donation at patreon.com slash the box. Every penny counts and keeps me on the road and researching. Until next time, stay safe out there. <laughs>